streams make glad this holy habitation of the most. God is in the midst of her. She shall not morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, your clarity and your expression are a gift, a real gift. Well, good morning. Um, some good news. First, if you haven't heard already, you know, John Wood had surgery on Tuesday, and the surgery was successful, and he is doing well. In fact, I got to see him in a Zoom call yesterday, and he really looked as good as ever. So praise God. Uh, our prayers, many prayers for him have been answered. Uh, my name is Jay Mitchell, if you don't know me, uh, and that's a possibility, um, and I'm one of your elders also. Uh, when John, uh, uh, some weeks ago, asked me if I would preach, immediately, without thinking, I said yes. The operative words, the operative words in that sentence are without thinking. Uh, <laughs> as I reflected, I said, oh my word, what have I done? Um, and now that's not a pitch for thoughtless decision-making. Uh, that's a, a praise for God's overriding providence. So here I am. And in all seriousness, I want to tell you, um, notwithstanding the trepidation, I want to tell you that I'm really delighted to be here. And I'll tell you why. There's one, one reason. I love this church. And you, you're the church. And that means I love you. I do. And so I'm delighted. I'm delighted to share God's word with you. I really am. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, please, we want your spirit to speak. We need your spirit to speak your word to us that it might teach us that moreover it might transform us 
And so, Father, we call on you now and we ask for your spirit to fill this place and to fill this poor mouthpiece. Please, please, we want you to speak. And if there's anything here in our hearts or otherwise that would get in the way of our hearing you, we ask now that you would remove that from us, please. Let us hear you. Let us be changed by you. Oh, by the power of the Spirit, the love of the Father, and the grace of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mercy. Mercy. Wonderful word, and we see it throughout Scripture, don't we? In fact, I'd argue that it's virtually God's middle name. In Exodus 34, we have this scene where Moses is back up on Mount Sinai, He's got the second set of stone tablets. We know what happened to the first. And God says to him this in verse 5, chapter 34 of Exodus. This is what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. By the way, in this text, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which we know is printed that way to give us a clue that what we're talking about in the Hebrew is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. We'll come back to that later. But here's what he says in verse 6. So he says, I'm going to proclaim my name, God says. And he says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You hear it there, his name, merciful, merciful. And mercy is a wonderful word. We love it. It comes to us and it conjures images of gentleness and pleasantness and kindness. It's, it's, it's the thought of a compassionate relief of someone's distress. And the archetypical probably example of, at least in the New Testament, of mercy personified, I would say, would be the Good Samaritan. You, 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 here he is. He finds his enemy, if you will, a Jew, lying on the road. You know the story. Near death. And he cares for him mercifully. So mercy is, that's how mercy often, that's how we think of it. And that's accurate. But it's also accurate that mercy comes in two flavors. There's another mercy, the mercy of God that delivers sinners from the condemnation and the power of sin, and that mercy is not always pleasant. Often, often that mercy, and it's still mercy, but it comes to us immersed in the severity of stressful circumstances. It's what some, including C.S. Lewis, have called a severe mercy. A severe mercy. And it's a mercy that seems to be the opposite of gentle. It's a mercy that seems to cause rather than relieve distress. And if this seems like a strange concept, or you're doubting, well, gee, is that biblical? Trust me, it is. You can look in a lot of places, but I would just point you to a prime example in the New Testament. Think about the prodigal. The prodigal's severe circumstances are what led him directly to his repentance. This is what, it, what, the, uh, what Luke, the author of Luke, uh, the gospel says in 10:14, and when he, that is the prodigal, had spent everything, a severe, that's the word in the text, 
a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. It was a severe mercy that brought the prodigal home. And it's this kind of mercy, a severe mercy, that we encounter in our text this morning. Our merciful and gracious God, abounding in steadfast love, treats Jonah and the sailors, the pagan sailors who have taken him aboard, God treats them to a severe mercy. Our text this morning is in Jonah, and it's specifically, it's in chapter 1, it's specifically verses 11 to 16, but we're going to look at the whole chapter for context, but I'm just going to read to you now verses 11 to 16 of chapter 1 of Jonah. Then they said to him, that is, the sailors said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they, the sailors, called out to the Lord. And it's interesting in the text, if you can see it, you see the all caps. These pagan sailors, who are they crying out to? They're crying out to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, oh, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's get some context here. And you know the story. I know this is very familiar. But still, we need to make sure we've got the context. Jonah, you know, is a prophet. He was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel in about the middle of the 8th century B.C., 760 or so, give or take. And the text tells us, if you go to the top of chapter 1, that he's commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital at that time of the country of Assyria. Assyria is a perennial enemy of Israel. But interestingly, at this particular time in history, Assyria is on the decline. They're having internal problems, external problems, and are very weakened country. Meanwhile, curiously, Israel is at a peak. Even though it, they've got a wicked king, Jeroboam II, Israel has been able to expand its boundaries even beyond where they were in Solomon's day. This was an age of prosperity. It didn't last long in Israel. And the tables are going to turn in about 40 years. And Assyria is going to conquer Israel and take them captive. But at this time, Assyria is the weakling and Israel is the strong one. And Assyria is notoriously, not only the perennial enemy of Israel, but notoriously evil, notoriously cruel, notoriously wicked. In fact, the text tells us that's why God sent him. The evil of Nineveh had come up to him. So this is what Jonah's commissioned to do, to go to Nineveh. We know that. Well, what happened? Did he go? Any kids out there know? Did Jonah go to Nineveh? No, no, at least not right away. Nineveh, Nineveh is to the northeast of Israel, about 500 miles overland. So he's supposed to go like this, right? 
And where does he go? He goes, the text tells us he goes down to Joppa. Joppa is south of Israel. In fact, it was outside of Israel at the time. It was in Philistine territory, a port city on the Mediterranean. And he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish. Tarshish is west. We don't know exactly where, but well west on the Mediterranean. So Jonah is told to go northeast 500 miles. And he goes southwest, probably equidistant was what he was planning on, something like that. So Jonah, the, the key here is Jonah is diametrically disobedient. I mean, there's just no getting around it. He's fleeing the Lord. We know that. And of course, after the ship gets underway, we know what happens. If you go again to the text, you see if in chapter 1, God hurls a great wind on the sea. And so you notice it doesn't say a storm came up. No, God hurls a wind on the sea. This is God's appointment that the sea would be stirred up, that there would be this mighty tempest. And this storm was severe. It was so severe, it's interesting. The text, if you look at it, it, it personifies the ship. It says the ship threatened to break up. That's how the text reads. And we know it's also severe because we see the fear of these sailors. And think about it. Think about it. These are sailors. This is their job, right? They're used to being on the sea. And they are scared to death. So this has to be a severe storm. And in fact, it's so severe, what do they do to the cargo? They hurl the cargo overboard. And I'm thinking, my word, that was the point of the trip. I mean, yeah, maybe they took on Jonah and a few other passengers, but the point of the trip was get the cargo. That was where their money was. And they throw the cargo overboard. And so that gives us a real sense of their fear and hence, given their context, the severity of the storm. And they don't know what to do. Uh, they cry out, each of them cries out to his God, it tells us. And then the captain goes and finds Jonah. He's sleeping in the, you know, below decks and he finds him. He says, get up, you sleeper. Call out to your God. You know, the captain's pulling out all the stops. He doesn't know who Jonah's God is at that time. But he said, hey, we're crying out to our gods. You cry out to your God. Maybe one of them will answer us. I mean, they are desperate. They are desperate. And, and pause for a moment and just think, you know, here we are. I know we live in Annapolis, and I know I'm talking to a lot of people who are boaters, a lot of people who've done a lot of sailing. And you know, think about it. I guarantee, you know, some of you guys who, you know, sail down the coast or sailed across the Atlantic, and I know one of you at least has sailed from California to Hawaii. Think about it. Have you not had a life-threatening experience, at least what you thought was? I know I have. Denny and I grew up as teenagers. That's how we met, on boats. Our parents had boats at the same marina. And we did a lot of boating. Now, I confess, yes, power boating. I know that's a sin here, but <laughs> it's out. It's out. Um, but we did. And, and I can remember, I, there's only one time that I remember so vividly, and that was the time we were coming back to Solomon's from the Potomac, we round the, the uh, point, we're headed up the bay, and there's this just horrendous storm, horrendous storm. And, we, and I was with my, my family, my, my dad, I was a teenager, my dad and, and our younger siblings, my mom and younger siblings were low, dad and I are up on the, uh, in the, uh, on the deck and piloting. And, and this is a pretty decent sized boat, a power boat, I understand. But a 42-foot double cabin, Chris, we're about 10 feet off the water. It's a big, wooden, heavy boat. And I got to tell you, we were scared to death because that boat, we, you know, there were times the props were out of the water, white water coming over the bridge. I mean, and, and so we had to act like sailors. We had to tack all the way 
all the way home, and it took hours. And I was not a believer at the time. Our family was, we weren't believers. We were pagan sailors, very much like Jonah. <laughs> but, but I hadn't read Jonah, and that's good because if I had, I might have thought about throwing one of my siblings overboard and solving the problem. <laughs> but it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me. Instead, we just, we just kept going, and we made it by God's grace. But, but the point of that is we've all, and if it's not on a boat, I guarantee most of us have had situations where we thought we were going to die. It was just that intense. And I would suggest that this situation for these sailors was even more intense than any of our experiences on the water. And let me, let me tell you why. Again, let's get frame of, frame, sort of frame of reference here for them. For the ancients, got to understand, not only was their boat probably not nearly as well constructed, and they didn't have GPS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not only all that, but these pagan sailors, for them, the sea was probably the most frightening and imposing force of nature. As Tom Wanger Jr. wrote, he has an unpublished manuscript that's really worth reading. Tom did. He, quote, in the ancient Near East, large bodies of water were usually considered to be deities or instruments that various gods used to do their bidding, unquote. And as a result of that, I also learned from Tom, in that time period and in that area of the, of the world, it was common for the peoples of that time to use trial by water. You've probably heard of trial by fire if you haven't heard of trial by water. And trial by water, like trial by fire, was really very, very simple. You know, if somebody had uh, committed a crime or, or a moral infraction and they were being tried and the evidence wasn't clear, they didn't submit the matter to a jury. They threw the accused in a body of water and if he survived, he was deemed to be innocent. If he drowned, well, he was guilty. All done, very efficient. And that was the common uh, practice. And, and you see, these sailors, they, they understand. This is, the, this is the water they live in, if you will, of the time. So when they are encountering this storm, the reason they're crying out to these gods is they're thinking, well, one of these gods must be the god of the sea. And this god of the sea is really angry. He's really angry. So they cast lots, you know earlier in the chapter, again, before our text, they cast lots to see, well, who's responsible for this? And the lot falls to Jonah, and they go to him, and they say, who are you, and where do you come from, and what are you doing, and what do they learn? They learn first that Jonah is a Hebrew, but they also learn, he says, I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the land and the sea. So if they weren't afraid already, now they know, oh, and he says, oh, by the way, yeah, and I'm fleeing him, okay? So, so they're not just dealing with the God of the sea, they're dealing with the God who made the sea. And they know they've got the guilty party on board. I mean, these guys, it's not just a weather pattern here for them. They are on the wrong end, as they see it, of a malevolent and vengeful God. So these guys are exceedingly, that's why it says, they were afraid of the storm, they learned this from Jonah, and they were exceedingly afraid. They were even more afraid. That's their context, that's their frame of reference as we now move into the real text. Because what they say, and I'm, I'm now at uh, verse 11, the real text, if you will. 
look what they say. They say to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? That may sound like, a, uh, you know, again, a strange question to us, but again, in their mindset, you know, I can understand them. What, what must we do? But they don't say that. They say, what must we do to you to get the sea to calm down? And you understand why they're saying that, right? They know that, the, that he's the problem. He's the problem. And Jonah responds, if you look, 12, he responds almost matter-of-factly, at least the way the text writes it. He says, um, well, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. And you think, well, problem solved. But that puts the sailors in a dilemma. They're not trying to figure out if he's guilty. They know he's guilty. So, yeah, if they don't throw him in, they're in real danger of everybody drowning. But if they do throw him in, he, they're guilty of murder. They're not trying to try him. They know he's guilty. And so they don't know what to do. So what do they do? What do these poor, poor sailors do? Well, instead of doing what Jonah and derivatively what God told them to do, the text in verse 13 tells us that the sailors rode hard to get back to dry land. And I don't know if you have a footnote in your Bible, I do in mine, under road hard, it says dug in. And the reason for that footnote is the Hebrew word there is not road, it's dig. These sailors dug in the oars. They were determined that they were going to save themselves and Jonah. And what happened? Of course, it was unsuccessful. Instead, the sea grew more tempestuous, the text tells us. Put simply, they could not save themselves. Ultimately, then the sailors cry out to Yahweh, Jonah's God, and they say, give us mercy. We're just, we don't know what to do. They throw him in. And, of course, the sea grows calm. We know Jonah's dire straits after that and move him to repentance. The fish, he's swallowed, and three days later, of course, he's spit out. So if we look at this in whole, just to summarize, to summarize, in a manner reminiscent of the flood, mother of all storms, and reminiscent of the crossing of the Red Sea, what we see here is a storm of judgment became the very means of redemption for those on whom God had placed his grace. Let me say that again. In a manner reminiscent of the flood, these, these are the two hallmark events in Israel, right? The flood with Noah and the crossing of the Red Sea. And reminiscent, echoing both of those hallmark events, this, the, we have a storm of judgment here in Jonah, which actually becomes the means of redemption for those on whom God had placed his grace. The storm was indeed a mercy. It was a mercy to Jonah, because it brought him to repentance. I know, he had other problems, and so do we. And it was a mercy, too, to the sailors. We don't know if the sailors were converted. We can't honestly say, but we can know this. They prayed to the right God, and they also gave sacrifices and vows and thanksgiving to the right God when the storm was quieted. Beyond that, we don't know, but it was a mercy to them. They knew a lot more after that trip than they knew before. So what was the message to, before we get to the message to us, and we're going to get there, I promise, what was the message to the Hebrew audience of that era? 
Think about it. This is also in the era of Isaiah, generally, and of Micah, and of Hosea, and Amos. All these prophets that are prophesying that Israel's going to be conquered. It's going to be captured. And Judah is going to be taken into exile. All these prophets, again, generally in this time frame, are saying this, are writing this. I would suggest that Jonah would have been an encouragement to the Hebrew people at that time who were familiar with these prophecies especially. Why? Because again, these two hallmark events, and they've got sort of a, now a trinity of these events with water and storms and, and severe mercy. Because now they, they're going to hear this story and they're going to say, the, potentially, the God of Noah and the God of Moses, when we look at it, Jonah's situation, the God of Noah and the God of Moses is unchanged in his covenant love for Israel. So the mercy of the exile, which was going to be intense and severe, most severe, they, they had a hint, they had a clue, they had a good reason in reading Jonah to expect that on the other side of the exile, there would be redemption. So it would have been an encouragement, I think, to them in that regard. But also, it would have said something else, I think, to that original audience. We're not going to get through the exile by rowing harder. God himself will have to rescue us. I think any of the readers at that time must have taken away that message. I think that's, those are two reasons anyway, probably, that Jonah was written to that audience. But what about to us? What's it say to us? We're on this side of the cross, so we have a much better perspective, a much better view of what was going on there than the people at that time. But they had a silhouette I'm going to say. Whether they can see it, I'm not sure. We can see it. There's a silhouette here of the Savior, isn't there? I mean, the sailors made the sacrificial offering of Jonah, and that was the instrument by which they were saved. So they get the silhouette of a Savior that they so desperately needed and awaited. And in fact, if you think about it, this Savior, Jonah, who they threw overboard, he was resurrected, wasn't he, after three days? when the fish vomited him out on dry land. So again, they had this, this shadow, this silhouette of the Savior, and we can see that, again, from our vantage point. We also know from our vantage point that it was an imperfect silhouette at best. Why? Because Jonah was sacrificed for his own sins as well as for the sins of the sailors. Whereas Jesus, by sharp contrast, we know, was sacrificed exclusively for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jonah is a silhouette, an imperfect silhouette, but we know from this side of the cross what this was pointing to. And in short, I would suggest that the takeaway here is that Jesus endured the ultimate severe mercy. The ultimate severe mercy because the severity was all his so that the mercy could be all ours. That's, I think, one of the messages, or central message, actually, of Jonah 1. Well, what about the storms in our lives? What about the storms in our lives? We all have storms in our lives and the lives of the people we love. And 
Some of those storms are the consequence of our own sin or their sin directly. And many of the storms are not. Many of the storms, like the storm in Mark 4 that Daniel read us, that beset the disciples, are just there. They're not because of direct consequence of sin, but just there to help us to know more deeply our loving God. And we all have storms. What are your storms? Think about it. Reflect on it. Perhaps it's financial worries. Perhaps you have a job that just doesn't pay the bills or you keep losing jobs and you're ashamed of your resume. Or maybe you have a good job, but you have two or three or who knows, maybe more kids. And you're trying to figure out how on earth am I going to pay for college? Maybe that's your storm. Or maybe your storm is maybe you're older yet in retirement years and you're trying to figure out, I don't think the money is going to last as long as I do. Maybe that's your storm. Or maybe your storm's not a financial worry at all. Maybe it's a relational stress. Maybe it's a stress in your marriage, a tension, a coldness. Or perhaps it's like the ship in the Jonah story. It's threatening to break up. Or maybe your stress relationally isn't with your spouse. Maybe it's with your children, perhaps your high school children, junior high children. You can see how old I am, junior high. Um, perhaps that's it. Or perhaps your stress, your storm, is with your adult children who have deconstructed their faith and have concluded that you have wounded them severely and they are estranged from you. Perhaps that's your storm. Or perhaps it's a collection of these. Perhaps your storm... Again, reflect with me. Perhaps your storm is an illness, a chronic illness. Perhaps it's Parkinson's or some form of cancer. Or perhaps your spouse has dementia. Perhaps that's your storm. Or perhaps even worse, grief over death, death of a loved one, death of a spouse, death of a child. Maybe that's your storm. Or maybe you have a whole collection of these storms. And you can see as I, as I mention these storms, these possible storms, these aren't squalls, are they? No, these are things that can last for years. More like a weather pattern than a storm, huh? And we also have these sort of short-term storms, don't we? These things that happen. And I don't know about you, but I got to say, I, I find myself living my life too often saying, well, once I just get through this, then. And, once, and, then, and then what happens? Well, once I just get through this, then. And then. And then. And then, desperate for dry land, and all I ever find at best is a sandbar. <laughs> and then, and the, the next storm, the next storm is upon me. Um, so we all have these storms. But the truth is, God is not only with us in each of these storms, which he certainly is, and oh, that's important. But he's also the Lord of the storm. He's the God who made the storm. He's the God who made the sea. Psalm 46 that Daniel read. Think about it. What's going on there? The psalmist, after describing the chaos of our fallen world, including starting with natural disasters, the earth falling into the heart, or mountains falling into the heart of the sea, attacks on the church, that is, the city of God. And then the, he talks about the entire world being at war, um, nations raging, kingdoms tottering. And then it gets to the climax in the psalm at verse 10, where God intervenes with that statement, be still and know that I am God. 
Now, I don't know how you read that passage. I'll tell you how I have read it wrongly for a long time. I've sort of read it like God patting me on the head saying, okay, Jay, it's okay. Be still and go do your devotions. But the truth is, in that context, and I think the commentators all agree, but Kidner, Derek Kidner did it. Nobody did it better than he. Here's what he says. Be still is not in the first place comfort for the harassed, but a rebuke to a restless and turbulent world. So what God is saying in Psalm 46, 10, in the midst of all this storm, in the midst of all this chaos, he is shouting, be still. He's saying, stop, enough. Silence. It's a rebuke. Now, it's a rebuke followed, again, this severe mercy, followed by the merciful. No that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's his rebuke. And think about Mark 4. Mark 4 is an echo of Psalm 46. Mark 4, and you know this story, it's, it's almost comical, almost. Um, Maybe I have a weird sense of humor, but I think it's comical. You've got these disciples. These guys are fishermen. Again, they're used to boats, right? But the storm comes up, and again, they're scared to death, right? And they go to Jesus, who's in the back of the boat sleeping, and they say, are you going to let us perish? And what does Jesus do? He stands up, and what does he say? Peace, be still. Now, he's rebuking specifically the waves and the storm at that moment, but he's implicitly rebuking the disciples who he will later follow up in that same passage and say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? There's a rebuke. But look at what the disciples, remember what, they, what, what happens at the end of that, what the end of it, what do they say? They say, it says, and the disciples were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. In other words, Jesus says, be still. And what do they recognize? This guy's God. That's what they recognize. And it says they were exceedingly, they were already afraid of dying from the storm. And now it says they're more fearful because they've encountered God. So whether we're talking, there's a pattern going on here. Whether we're talking about the sailors in Jonah or we're talking about the audience of the psalmist, or we're talking about the disciples in the boat, the pattern is clear. They are called, and thereby calling us, through these storms, to know, in each case, to know the only exalted God and the Lord of the storm. That's what's happening in every case. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And exalt me, worship me. Well, wrapping up, what about us? How do we respond to our storms, whatever they might be? Well, I'd say too often I, I see only the severity and don't even look for the mercy. My response to the storm, or perhaps our response to the storm, whatever its form, relational stress, illness, whatever its form, I think our response to the storm often seems indistinguishable from that of Jonah's ancient pagan mariners. 
What do we say? What, what must we do to get the sea to grow calm for us? And desperate for dry land, what do we do often? At least I do often. I dig in and row harder. I dig in and row harder. That's often my, our response. And I think what God would say to us through Jonah is we would do much better, I would do much better to drop the oars and drop to my knees. I would do much better to heed his severe but merciful rebuke, to be still and know that he is God. In place of desperately asking, what does that mean on a practical level? In place of desperately asking like I do most of the time, typical question, if it doesn't come from my lips, it's in my head, why is this happening to me? You ever relate to that? You ever ask that question? Why is this happening to me? You know, what am I supposed to do about this? What must I do to get the sea to calm down? Well, perhaps in place of those questions, I do well to ponder some other questions, like, is God, my God, really the Lord of the storm? Or not? Or I might ask, do I believe that as symbolized by my very baptism, that my trial by water is all done once and for all, and my resurrected Savior drowned so that I would not? Do I believe that? I say I do. Do I believe it? It's a good question for me to ask. I might also ask, what mercy in this storm, what mercy is my Savior tendering to me? What does he want me to let go of? What does he want me to embrace? What's he calling me to? Does he, you know, maybe he wants me to let go of my fear and embrace trust, embrace his sufficiency. Maybe he wants me to let go of my anger and embrace forgiveness or extend forgiveness. Maybe he wants me to let go of my pride and embrace humble repentance. Those are the questions I think I should be asking in the thick of the storm. And I'd suggest as we contemplate these questions in the thick of the storm, that the Holy Spirit might just make the truth a bit more real for us. Namely, we might really, really better believe that the Lord of the storm is our Savior. And he is with us. In fact, he's in our boat. And it might look like he's sleeping. But I would strongly suggest that we can be certain that he's mercifully and skillfully not just steering the boat. He's steering the storm. And he's steering the storm to produce in us the changes that he knows we most need. Brothers and sisters, our dear, precious God loves us too much to do otherwise. Amen and amen. Praise be to our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, you know us, and you know how we respond to the severe mercy that you bring into our lives. Oh, we just row harder. Lord, help us, help us, help us to trust you, 
to be still, to know that you are God, to exalt your name, and to ask you the right questions, and to listen, oh, to listen to your dear answers in the thick of the storm. Father, we pray these things. We thank you for your word, and we pray with great expectation because we know that you love us more than we can imagine. And you are, you are the Lord of the storm. In Jesus' name, amen.